All right, guys, I am so excited for today's guest. He's a writer, a producer, an actor who you may recognize from Scandal, The Comeback, Web Therapy. Most recently, he was on How I Met Your Father, or you might remember him from that one scene in Friends where it's Phoebe's birthday dinner and everyone's late and the waiter is really annoyed. But most importantly, he's a husband and a father of two. I am so excited to be speaking with him today to celebrate Pride Month and discuss his and my respective paths to becoming gay dads. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dan Bukatinsky. Hi, Dan. Hi there. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to officially meet you. I mean, I've been watching you on TV for decades now. So to meet you face to face is quite an honor. Well, um, I hope that I, it lives up to decades of expectation. <laughs> but it just makes I'm, me feel old. But I will say that I am old, except that every day I wake up and say, I'll never be as young as I am right this second. And so that sort of charts my path forward. <laughs> what a great way to wake up. And especially on a day like today where, you know, you were just emailing me that you were running after your dog that escaped. So what a great mantra to remind yourself that like, you know, it, this is the youngest you'll ever be. So chase after that dog right now. Oh my God. When I was running up the hill behind my house, I, I was like, oh my God, I'm too old for this. Like my, I, I was, the hill is completely dirt and rocks and vines and it couldn't have been more like i would i would fail on day one of survivor um that's for sure yeah. um, but uh yeah we fi i finally got the dog back but it took a good half hour he is, he is well if it makes you feel any better i mean i probably wouldn't be able to do that at 34 oh, and uh you know i i could see myself on a lot of reality shows but survivor is not one of them so definitely exactly. not my cup of tea i don't really think it's like a it's not in the gay gene you know it's like not our bag there's a gay every season i love that show i've watched 150,000 seasons of it because that's how many they've made and there always seems to be there always seems to be the gay yeah. um and you know spoiler alert but this last season very much so wow well i mean i, I have to imagine it's like a very special type of gay especially after reading your book i mean you and i are very similar in that mm -hmm. um sports ain't our bag baby right <laughs> but no. we'll we'll get all into that um I do want to talk about your career. Like I mentioned, you've had a long and illustrious career with major projects, major roles. You've rubbed elbows with and become great friends with some of the most talented and successful people in Hollywood. You're a hilarious voice in the entertainment industry. Thank so you. I really want to know, you're welcome. I really <laughs> want to know how it all began. So in your book, uh, Does This Baby Make Me Look Straight, which by the way, I have now read three times. It is oh, so wow. fucking funny. Thank um, you. <laughs> you're welcome. But you talk about how you were performing for your parents at a really young age, which I think, again, is something that a lot of gays can relate to. So can you take me back to that time growing up in uh, the suburbs and how you kind of parlayed that into a career? Yeah, well, I, um, I grew up in New York City um, until I was eight. And I, you know, I think I remember being in a production of Midsummer, Midsummer's Night, Midsummer Night's Dream yeah. in first grade. Like I had this really progressive teacher. I was going to say, like, wow, Shakespeare I mean, at age seven. Uh, <laughs> it was it was amazing. I mean, to, to be doing a little mini production of, of a Shakespeare play when you're in first and second grade, it was it was a very progressive school at a very progressive time in the 70s mm -hmm. in New York City. And then we and I, I feel like from a very early age, I felt like I was a performer and I felt at home in New York City. And then we moved to the suburbs, which was really tricky for a budding gay because um, <laughs> the suburbs were all about sports, you know, yeah. and riding bikes. And I did all those things. I tried to do all those things, but really what I wanted to be doing was being in place. Yeah. And um, my parents are immigrants from Argentina. And so they were very eager for both of their kids to go to college and both of their kids to have stability at all costs. So being, I wasn't exactly encouraged to go into show business. Um, so as I went on uh, through uh, high school doing plays, and then I went off to college at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, I was studying a lot of other things. So I had something to fall back on. Um, but that's like, that's gotta be the, the Jewish mom in you being absolutely. like, you gotta have a plan B. I've got that too. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the Jewish, my mom was, a, you know, a therapist and my dad was an engineer and there was no show business in my family. I had no connections to show business. And, 
Um, my mom, I think it just scared her. I think the whole thing just scared her. And now in hindsight, with good reason, I mean, right. you know, it's like a tight, it's like someone saying, I'm going to be a tight rope walker. Right. Like, ah, yeah. <laughs> if it makes you happy, but maybe have something to fall back on like a net, you know, literally, yeah, <laughs> literally a net. But that said, when I was at college, um, I mean, I'm jumping ahead, but I was always a performer inside me. And I always knew that that's what I wanted to do. And the other thing about it is that I I was bullied a lot as a, as a kid in the suburbs. Um, a lot of merciless bullying and a kid in the neighborhood who terrorized me. And there was some part of me that always, always in the back of my mind thought like, oh, my God, this can't be it. This can't be the way life is, like where you just... You can't leave your house without feeling terrorized by somebody. And I yeah. just, I felt this drive inside of me to prove them wrong, to prove whatever they were saying about me was wrong. I mean, I'm sure all of this is about internalized, my own internalized homophobia, my own fear of being gay. Um, there was a period of time when I even told myself, well, if it turns out to be true, if it turns out well, by 18, if it turns out that I'm really gay, I'm just, I have to kill myself because I can't live with that. Wow. And it was a different time. It was just a different yeah. time. There were no real role models. Uh, there was, I didn't know anybody in my, in my parents' life or there was nobody on television that was really out. Mm -hmm. So I went off to college and after graduating college, I decided I'm definitely going to be an actor. And I moved to New York and I got just like every card carrying college graduate who wants to be an actor. I got a job as a waiter of course, in, in New York. And at that same time, I was just starting to uh, be willing to call myself. I mean, I was dating girls. I was dating guys. I was calling myself bisexual which was all part of a journey to the mm -hmm. point where I was able to accept who, who I really was. But, um, but it took time. It took time. It took until I was 25 before I came out to my parents. But by that point, I was already acting. I was waiting tables. I was auditioning in New York for plays and theater and TV projects. And I got my SAG card doing a Haagen-Dazs industrial. They don't even make industrials anymore, but they're sort of right. like tra training films, you know, for, yeah. for for corporations. Yeah, I did um, one of those when I was a kid. I don't even remember what it was for. You know what I think it was? Um, Lisa Frank, you know, the company Lisa Frank, like all yeah. the glitter and unicorns. It's based, I live in Tucson, Arizona, and the, the corporation is based here randomly. So uh, when I was a kid, I think I did like a training video and some like marketing stuff for them. But yeah, that's like internal. Internal you know, videos and they would hire yeah. actors for them. And so I was able to get my SAG card in like 1989, which is awesome. ages ago. Um, but I was driven. I was really driven. I was like, I am going to, I have to find a way through. I have to find a way in. I was taking acting classes and dance classes and singing lessons. And I was writing sketches at the Groundlings and I was performing a sketch show that I put together and I just would not stop. Um, and I, I think that that drive started at a very young age. It was very much I've talked openly about the fact that in many, many ways, I'm very grateful to the bullies. I'm grateful to all the naysayers in my life because they they sort of infused me with uh, motivation, with an ambition and with a drive, to, you know, both because it was what I love to do, but also because I was looking for a way to prove the negativity and the you know, the ridicule and the humiliation to, to prove that wrong. Um, so that was a sort of an internal little driver. Um, yeah, but I actually, I think that's a really common thing with, yeah. with queer people is that, you know, kind of that motivation to prove everyone wrong or, you know, that feeling of like, we're not good enough in so many ways. So let me be so fucking successful at this one thing. So, yeah. so that I am good and, and valid. Um, I, yeah, I think that's a real commonality that, that queer people share. And it's really interesting because this is a very controversial subject, but the idea now, I mean, we have made so, listen, there's so much, there's so, we have so much longer to go in terms of yeah. fighting for, for queer legislation and we've moved backwards now a little bit, but, right. but um, we've come a long, long way from when I was 20 in the eighties and the, the association with the AIDS crisis and being gay and being out was so, so um, prevalent. Yeah. And it, it was visceral. And there was like this feeling of shame of just saying that you were gay because it would tie you to this, this global, you know, epidemic, which it was a really tricky time to, to yeah. be coming out. Um, 
But now, you know, we have made huge strides and younger kids, certainly in, in the bigger cities of our country, are, are able to come out with a lot less uh, shame. Um, I think a lot of kids in the middle of the country do not have, a, you know, they, they still feel that level of panic about yeah. it and lack of acceptance. And in many ways, those things are what either kill us or make us stronger. And they, and they, they help drive us. Um, I talk to young queer kids now all the time who are 18 or 20 or 28, and they didn't necessarily have some, some didn't necessarily have any issue with coming out of the closet was like a non-issue was a non-event. Um, my daughter identifies as pansexual. And I remember one day when she was 14, she was just like, pass the salt. I'm, you know, I'm bisexual or whatever she said. It was so Mm -hmm. casual. I thought like, boy, we are living in a different time. Oh Um, yeah. But it, for whatever it's worth, it was torture and it, and and it certainly was painful, but it, uh, it served me in some ways. It served me to that, that level of, of, I, I guess, I don't know. Some of it was revenge fantasy and some of it was just drive to do what I love. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I have to imagine part of it too is also drive to to find where you belong and to find yeah. where you fit in. And and like, you know, not just, you know, to my point before of like, oh, I want to be great to prove you wrong, but also like, I want to find my greatness. I want to find where I am celebrated. Sure. Absolutely. And also finding your people. Like that's a, yeah. I, I worked on a project a, a few years ago called, um, well, it was, it was sort of an offshoot of the It Gets Better project, and it was called mm-hmm. It Got Better, and you can still find them on, on YouTube, I think. And um, they were a series of about 18 short documentaries of prominent LGBTQ plus actors, writers, athletes, you know, who, who talk about when life seemed insurmountable and how they managed to surmount the insurmountable and almost all of them from every walk of life and age from Ian McKellen to Portia de Rossi to Rosie O'Donnell to Jane Lynch and um, the list goes on and on all of them had the similar message which was like as they grew up they had to find a way to find their people yeah and it like looking for community is always such a big part of being out and being able to go and do the things that you love to do or even find love or find who you are or what you want to yeah. be if you need us if it's not your family of origin you need to find the family that's going to support you in whatever that endeavor is so so for me being in new york was a way of doing that and then eventually moving to los angeles with this sketch show that i i had written um i moved out to la um i i was only going to come out to la for one year it was a one-year experiment and right at the end of the one year point, I met my current husband, Don, had no had no intentions of having a, a life like that, except what I discovered in meeting someone was how badly I did want to settle down, have a partner. Um, we didn't really talk about having kids. My husband was a little older than me, and he just never thought about he never really wanted marriage and kids and um and I was very closeted. I professionally, I was like, this is great. I'm in a relationship that's all fine. But in terms of on camera and auditioning, and I have to make sure that nobody that the miss being an actor is being a chameleon. And the less anyone knows about me, the better. Yeah. And I, I spent a good five years, you know, uh, I spent a good five years hiding, uh, who I was, wow. um, um, it professionally. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I mean, I was going to ask how you think your, uh, you know, sexual identity or or being a gay man impacted your career, if it did at all, or or how it impacted you getting roles. I mean, do you think it was something that, that you really were up against, or do you think it was something that you kind of were, uh, you were putting up yourself because that's just the fear that you had, you know? You know, it's a little bit of both. At at the time that I moved out to LA in the early nineties, the roles for gay characters were all very specific. They were yes. the swishy, mm-hmm. snapping the neighbors. The gay best friend, yeah. The gay best friend. Um, a gay was always in an ascot, always wearing purple, and was fabulous. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I would 
I would try to audition for those parts, but there was always people who could do that uh, so much better. It just wasn't, it didn't come naturally to me. Dan, you're and fabulous. What are you talking about? Thank you. Thank you. But I, you know, for, for the most part, I don't, um, I have, I'd have to put it on. And right, sometimes right. I do. Others will say to me, like, I, I knew you were gay from, you could tell you were gay from space, which is fine. But yeah. at the time I was trying so hard to pass that and the auditions I, and, and, the, and the roles I would audition for, I was trying so hard to pass that in hindsight, I did myself a huge disservice because while being out would have limited my options and it, and it does, you know, you, you, when people know what you are and who you are and uh, it limits your options in the same way that women who, who identify as women have li cannot necessarily audition for every role that was written for someone who identifies as a man. You know, right. there's going to be there's going to be some level of discrimination one way or the other, right. just because of who we are and what and mm -hmm. what's available to us. But and that, I, and that is the name of the game. I mean, you you quite literally have to fit a description of the character that's on the page or at least what the director envisions. So, I mean, if you're not what they're looking for, if they only see you as one thing that's I mean, right in, in the real world yeah that sucks but in hollywood it is what it is it, it is exactly what it is and and i i gave a talk at sag several years ago about this very topic which is like should should actors be out that was the big question and it's such a personal question i mean mm -hmm. you know if, if you have a if you have a, a a robust career playing gay and straight characters and then for the most part the best thing you can do is keep your entire personal life to yourself so that you can, so that people can imagine you in any kind of role. Right. We're now living in a time where, for the most part, people feel comfortable being out. Mm -hmm. And once you are, that may limit your options. Uh, it may or may not limit your, the, the options of roles that you play. Um, I, I talked very openly about the fact that if it, once I was really out and I, and I, had, but, and I really think having um, deciding to be a dad was a huge piece in that outing process. Um, right. It was it, maybe a little bit beforehand, but I, I think it was time to just sort of embrace my spouse, embrace the fact that I was gonna be a dad and be who I was in a very authentic way. It completely changed my creative life. I Once I wasn't hanging on for dear life to control the impression I was making on anybody and I could just let loose in some way. Um, I, I became a different kind of writer. I became a different kind of actor. It, I don't think it's a coincidence that I, I was able to write a book that was really scary to write, very honest about who I was, how I met my husband, how we became parents, the things that scared the shit out of me, the ways in which I wasn't completely a neurotic controlling parent and all the ways in which the first five years of, of parenthood, you know, terrorized me. But I, it was also a very, very frank look at my marriage and my parenthood. And, and it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that around that time I was auditioning for, I was on an episode of Grey's Anatomy and then I auditioned for Scandal. And then they wrote this role for me to play James. And the role was very similar to who I am in real life. And it was a game changer. It was an absolute game changer. And I felt performing that character was an incredibly liberating experience because I was 100% authentically myself and allowed myself to be and feel and react in this marriage with that particular monster <laughs> played beautifully by Jeffrey Perry. Um, <laughs> um, I, I felt I, I, something had changed in me. And, and by the way, I was in my mid forties. I came to LA at 27. And when you think about how many years I spent trying to figure out not only where I fit in the business, but who I am as a person, yeah. um, it took me a good 15 years to sort of figure out that I just had to rely on the truth. And, uh, you know, I sort of wound up having the career I dreamed of having in my 20s. I wound up having it in my 40s. Um, which isn't to say I wasn't working. I had a company with Lisa Kudrow for 15 years. We produced right. a lot. We've produced a lot of television. I've mm -hmm. written a lot of television. But in terms of what my first love was to be an actor and allow myself to just be who I am, both on stage and on screen and all that, it, it really took 
into my forties to, to grow into that. Um, so that's a long answer. I'm so sorry. No, I mean, that was so great. I feel like we, we really just walked hand in hand through, through two decades of your career, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Um, now you, you talked about how you were writing sketch comedy and when you first moved to LA, you, you know, had a sketch show that you were writing. Um, now it's very common for actors and performers to write their own projects and write their own roles for themselves, for themselves. Um, but that's something that comedians specifically have been doing forever you know was was that something that you did in particular because you knew that it would be easier for you to write roles for yourself than wait for for roles that you might uh be right for or was it just that you had had a lot of stories to tell and you you just wanted to write these things uh a little bit of both and i've had to learn this lesson over and over and over and over again just uh fyi you know we as actors fool ourselves into thinking that there's a big break that's coming. Mm -hmm. And in some circumstances, in some very rare circumstances, that does happen. I'm telling you that scene in Friends at Phoebe's birthday dinner, that was a big break, Dan. (laughs) That was, it was a lot of fun, but that was not (laughs) my big break. And I don't know, you know, if I had one big break in my, in my career, I certainly was working for a very, very long time in a lot of different ways. But what happened at Scandal was like, could be described as the one game changer, right? But, but even that, even that, which was a great thing. And I had lots of opportunity after that. And I, I've been looked at differently ever since then. I'm still constantly being having to relearn that if I want a certain kind of experience or if I want to tell a particular kind of story, I'm going to have to tell that story myself. I can't just sit at home hoping that the perfect story and the perfect role and the the opportunity and the vehicle is going to just emerge and be driven up my driveway and delivered to me. It's it. I have to teach myself that over and over again. And it, it happened. It happened in New York when I was frustrated. I was young and had so much energy and I was putting my headshots under the doors of every agency and casting director in New York on a regular basis and auditioning for everything. And it wasn't until I took a class at the Groundlings and started writing sketches and writing comedy and playing characters that I felt like I was taking some control over my own creative destiny. And so to some degree, it wasn't, it was really like employing myself. And, and I, it taught me a lesson because I was able to produce this little sketch show that I was in and then I brought it to LA and I performed it again. And then years later, I had an, you know, I already had an agent. I was already playing bit parts on a bunch of TV shows, but none of them were scratching the itch. So then I wrote this little one act play based on the sketches that I had written originally. I mean, talk about working the same material, just Mm -hmm. wait. I, I wrote this little play about a straight couple, you know, in a relationship and we put the play up in West Hollywood and it was an opportunity to perform again. And the woman who produced it said, came to me at the end of the run and said, why don't you adapt this into a movie, but make the two characters guys instead of a guy and a girl? Because the story was a little bit like when Harry met Sally and that had okay. already, that was already a movie, mm-hmm. but no one had seen really a movie that was just like when Harry met Sally, but about two guys. So I spent a year and I adapted the one act play into a gay romantic comedy, which became all over the guy. And we, you know, I starred in it and I wrote it and we found a director and we made it for a half a million dollars and, you know, Lionsgate bought it and it came out in theaters. And it was another piece of evidence that if you really truly want these experiences, you ultimately have to do them yourself. Um, so I've always kind of been having to learn again and again. It, of course, it's nice to have the phone ring and you get an offer for a show and you go off and do it, but it doesn't always happen that way. And um, I, I'm fortunate enough that I write. And, and But even recently, even recently, even after the Baker and the Beauty was canceled and, and the pandemic happened, I was very aware that like, I think I've got to figure out a vehicle that I can control myself because I can't count on it just landing in my lap. Yeah. Um, and so that that continues to be a driver. Yeah. And I think, too, you know, 
actors are creative people. And, you know, like we were saying before, so much of acting is kind of just fitting into a role and standing on your mark and saying your lines. And so to be someone who's creative and wants to play and try stuff on a lot of sets, that's not allowed. I mean, unless you are the cast of Friends, you know, season right. five, you can do whatever the hell you want. But for, for a regular actor on a set, a lot of times the directors don't let you play around. So to be able to be creative and, and write your own stories and, and you know, uh, tell these stories from your perspective is, is truly a gift. So I'm really happy for you that you were able to seize that opportunity and be able to continue doing that for, for so long. That's awesome. It, it really, um, I, you know, I feel fortunate that I was able to write as many, a lot of this, most of the pilots I've written over the years, and there have been many, were not vehicles for myself. They were just opportunities to write ideas that I had that I thought would make good TV shows. And I was fortunate enough to get to write those. But what was really fortunate, to be honest with you, is that none of those, most of those shows did not go on to become TV shows. Because really, once I had kids, I really wanted the time to be a dad. Yeah. And so being able to write a pilot that doesn't then take me into a writer's room until four o'clock in the morning, every single night, the f it's a terrible thing to have. I wasn't wishing for, I obviously wanted every one of my pilots to move forward, but right. in hindsight, I realized that for about eight to 10 years, when my kids were at their most formative years, the fact that I didn't have to then go and sit in a writer's room and break 22 or 13 or 10 episodes a season allowed me to drive my kids to school and be there to, for pickups and be part of the, their development in the first 10 years, especially with adopted kids. Yeah. Um, it was really important that I be present in their lives. And the fact that I was not able, that, that a lot of my pilots didn't go forward, bought me an experience that I would never have had. And it really taught me you know, a lesson in sometimes the things that don't turn out um, you know, negative outcomes, which destroy you in the moment, yeah. you, you are actually gifts. Um, it's hard yeah. to look at it that way when it happens, believe me. No, but hindsight's twenty twenty. I mean, I look back on so many things that I thought were disasters and going to end my life. And I now realize that I would be on a, such a different path had those things come to fruition in a different way. So yeah, Plus, definitely. When someone kicks you, the reaction to the kick besides ouch <laughs> and besides, you know, nursing the pain, the, what, however way you bounce back from it is a thing that then will drive the very next opportunity or decision or pivot. Yeah. Um, so it's a, a topic that interests me a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Now we're going to dive into the book and we're going to yep. talk all about your kids and parenthood. But really quick before we do, you know, we talked about your partnership with Lisa Kudrow and we mentioned that you were in the comeback and web therapy. So uh, I just wanted to ask really quickly how you and Lisa met and how you turned that friendship into a professional relationship and, and what it's like working with her. Hey guys, I'm so excited to be celebrating Pride Month with my friends over at Mala and Mantra. Curators of meditation mala beads designed with precious gemstones and crystals, handcrafted by a fair trade cooperative of women artisans in the Philippines. Judith Compton, founder of Mala and Mantra, approached my husband Matthew to help design their 2023 Pride bracelet, as she's always wanted to help support the LGBTQ community. Judith insisted Matthew consult and provide guidance on this project based on his experience in diversity, equality, and inclusion initiatives and marketing. This was a three-month process of collaborating with Judith to select intentionally curated gemstones and mala beads, crafting a mantra and copy for the marketing materials, and ultimately developing and releasing the design, the Unconditional Love Bracelet. We face the harsh reality of recent anti-LGBTQ policies in a world that should celebrate love and diversity. From discriminatory laws to oppressive regulations, the rights of our LGBTQ community are at risk. But remember, this fight is about more than just policies. It's about the lives and well-being of our friends, family, and neighbors. Every person deserves to live authentically, free from fear and prejudice. So let's raise our voices and take a stand for equality. Together, we can create a world where love knows no boundaries and everyone is accepted for who they are. 10% of proceeds of all Mala and Mantra unconditional love bracelets will be donated to P-Flag National from June 2023 through June 2024. 
Founded in 1973, PFLAG is the first and largest organization dedicated to supporting, educating, and advocating for LGBTQ people and their families. PFLAG also provides support and resources to those in marginalized communities, such as Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, African Americans, Latinos, and the military community. Learn more about PFLAG's works at pflag.org, and make sure to purchase your unconditional love bracelet at malaandmantra.com. Happy Pride Month! Well, it's quite simple. Oddly enough, Lisa and I were at college at the same time. Uh, we overlapped two years and never met in college. We just, I just went to Vassar and then she was at Vassar and she was studying chemistry and I was studying other things. Um, <laughs> not chemistry. But, not chemistry. But, <laughs> but 10 years later, almost exactly 10 years later, my husband, Don, wrote a movie called The Opposite of Sex and he cast Lisa Kudrow in it. And when I met Lisa on set, I was on set uh, with Don, you know, a lot of the time that he was making his first movie because I was supporting him at that time. And, um, and, and I learned a great deal from my spouse, who has been a mentor to me for so many years. Um, I met Lisa on set and we realized that that's when we realized, you know, we were both at Vassar and we probably intersected. And I wonder if we know any of the same people. So we became very, very good friends. And then a year later, when I was making All Over the Guy, she did a cameo in my movie. And then a year later, I went off to do Under the Tuscan Sun. And the minute I came back from Italy from doing that film, Lisa pulled me aside and she's like, you know, you're writing pilots and you made this movie and Warner Brothers is asking if I want to have a development deal because at that time at Friends and you were season eight, yeah. almost every one of them, the studio really wants to make sure that their talent feels supported. And if they're going right. to make new shows, they want a piece of them. And she Keep said, it in the family. But Lisa was really... I have to hand it to her. She, in almost every case, when you have a TV star who's going to hang a shingle and start a company, they almost always pair with an executive who's been in at the studio or at the network or an or an old agent who is going to sort of be the business side of their company. Um, but Lisa wanted to partner with a fellow actor, writer, a creative, a person who had been doing it themselves. Uh, and so she and I decided against against the advice of both of our agents, um, we started a company in 2003. And right away at Warner Brothers, we started making pilots. Um, right away, we made a television movie for, it was called ABC Family, it's now called Freeform. We very quickly began collaborating with other writers and making television shows and pilots. And soon after, um, she met with Michael Patrick King and cooked up the idea for the comeback. And I was making a pilot that I had written for CBS called Commuters. And we were having our first child. So in 2005, we were shooting the comeback. I was shooting Commuters. And we were expecting our first child. It was the most crazy time. But Lisa and I, our company was the, so robust. Um, and then together we wound up, you know, um, helping to bring the British format, Who Do You Think You Are, to America. We've done 11 seasons of that. We're so proud of that show. And then in 2008, we were approached about, at the time, it was brand new. The notion of webisodes and yeah. doing con content, short form content was a brand new thing. Mm -hmm. And Lisa said, I, I, the only way I would ever do something short form is if, is if the very premise of the idea was about being on the web. Rather than cut up a TV pilot into little pieces, let's right. do something that feels organic to being on the web. And she cooked up this idea of of a therapist who would do three minute sessions because she thought that would be a good idea, like a horrible, horrible therapist. And that's how web therapy was born. Don and Elisa and I three, we've been best friends since he was my husband, but obviously the three of us are very, very close collaborators for over a decade, almost two. Um, we, we started making web therapy and we were bringing in talent to improvise and we made tons and tons of them and it wound up a half hour show on showtime and um it was among the most creatively satisfying experiences because 
we, there was no studio. We, were, we, we made it ourselves. We still own it. We controlled the story. We improvised. We laughed our asses off. And we got to work with Meg Ryan and Meryl Streep yeah. and Steve Carell. And, Huge people. Um, so we, we, uh, we let our company be a place that we sold bigger projects to the bigger networks, but also a playground for us to try the stuff that made us laugh that yeah. we could control. And uh, we had that company for about 15 to 17 years. And then my career sort of took a turn towards the acting and Lisa started to want to focus more on acting. And so we now continue to produce a game show called 25 Words or Less, which is in its just finished its fifth season. And we still produce Who Do You Think You Are together? And we're still best of friends, but we don't develop together anymore. We we do lots of other things. That's awesome. Well, I mean, I, I have to say Friends, like most people, is like my favorite show. My dog's names are actually uh, Chandler, Monica, and Joey. So oh, I love that. That's so, near and that's dear funny. to my heart. Near and dear to my heart. Um, the Comeback is like one of the funniest shows I've ever watched. And to be able to have a season and then go like 10 years and come back for season two yes. and have it work and have people still be interested and it, it makes sense. Like that was really so scary. incredible. It yeah, was really I can imagine. Scary. To come back nine years later and not know, like, is this a huge mistake? Are people going to then compare us to the first season? As it turned out, it was its own thing. And I, yeah. I, I like season two, if, if not as much more than the, the first. It's um, so funny. I mean, the, it, it makes sense, though, because the first season is all about, you know, like what's happened in Valerie Cherish's career and how she ended up where she is now. And then you jump forward nine years and it's kind of like, OK, now we have all of this new stuff to catch up on, not only in what's happened in her life, but in everyone else's lives. It's just yep. it was brilliant. And now we're, brilliant. we're in 2023, which is exactly nine years after second season. So, so wouldn't it be a next? good time to just finish the. I mean, is this breaking news? Or are we getting no, no, uh, no. the comeback no. season three? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we talk about it all the time and people ask all the time. And um, season two ended so beautifully and in such a dramatic way. We would have to come, you know, Lisa and Michael together would have to be inspired by an idea that just felt like it had yeah. to happen. Yeah. Um, what what has come, what what has become a Valerie Cherish now is a question that we can, you know, I, I, I dream of doing a third short, very short third season, like a little yeah. movie. And it'll either happen or it won't, which is why yeah. we call our company is or isn't entertainment because <laughs> things things either are or yeah. they're not. Yeah, yeah, it's one or the other. Um, I do think though that uh, Andy Cohen was very remiss in not casting Valerie Cherish on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I think she would have been great, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> it would have been great, absolutely. <laughs> All right, Dan, I, I wanna talk about, like I said, my favorite book, read it three times, Does This Baby Make Me Look Straight? So obviously- you mean this? You mean this book? book? Yes. Hold which on, is I can't it's blur my background. There it is. Oh, there it is. Does this baby make me look straight? I, know, I have to unblur my background because then I can really can show it off. A proper plug. Not yes. That you, not that you need to see it, but um, believe it or there not, it the audio, the audio book uh, did, did so much better than the. Well, the book did great, but I, but um, the audio book continues to be a way that people encounter the book, um, which I read, and it's not that surprising now that I think about it, because the way this book came about was that I had been asked, I, I had no, I was not looking to write a book. I, I had never dreamed of writing a book. It was not in, you know, it wasn't even my wheelhouse. Um, but I had been asked to write an essay about parenthood that you would never read in a parenting magazine, like the bare truth about some little thing that yeah. happened to perform at an at, at these shows called Afterbirth, where five or six writer, comedians, performers would read true, true essays about parenthood that were really funny. And I did about seven of those shows. And over the course of those seven shows, uh, my daughter got a little older. We had a son. We talked about, I was able to talk about a sort of chronology of my parenthood. And suddenly I had eight essays that I had written that were really funny and also truthful about being a parent. And that's when it hit me that like, if I were to write a few more, if I were to put this together in some kind of order, a series of essays that are funny and truthful and just different perspectives on my particular path towards parenthood, because so many of the experiences I had coincide with straight dads, straight moms. It's about parenthood. It's not really about gay parenthood. Right. Um, 
at the end of the day, you know, a diaper is a diaper. We just, you know, we'll look a little better when we're changing them. Um, <laughs> but that's how the book came about. It really wound up by accident. And because I had performed so many of the essays out in front of an audience before it became a book, when I got to do the audio book, it felt like, oh, this is sort of how it was meant to, to, to be heard, you know? Yeah. Well, it's such an easy read. I mean, I was able to this week get through the book in a day. It, it just flows. You don't want to put it down. And it, your you. voice, your voice is so resonant throughout. So being able to hear, hear it read aloud, I, I can only imagine I would just sit back and just, you know, fully embrace it and never want to turn it off. I mean, wow, we're also in you. like the, the podcast generation. So we're all listening to, to long form content now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's, it's such a great book. It's an easy Easy read for anyone who's listening or apparently an easy listen if you want to get the audiobook. Um, but but obviously, like you said, you kind of cover the the full journey from those uh, initial discussions of wanting to be a dad to actually bringing home your daughter and then, you know, a little over two years later, bringing home your son and then watching them grow up and all of that, everything in between. So kind of just want to start at the beginning. You know, my husband and I, we're in the process of adoption. It's something we've been doing for two and a half years now. And every adoption story is very similar and yet very different. And, and like we all go through the same things, but then we all have such unique experiences throughout. So being able to speak to other adoptive parents, being able to hear stories from other adoptive parents, that's been hugely beneficial to us going through mm -hmm. this experience. Um, you know, so reading your book was, was so helpful. So thank you. Sure. But I definitely want to know, you know, you and Don obviously opted for adoption after discussing surrogacy, um, which is something you dive into in the book. You talk about how, you know, you kind of talk about whose sperm will we use and will the other one feel left out at all? Can you kind of discuss, you know, your guys's uh, conversations around that and how ultimately you decided adoption was the correct choice for you guys? Um, yeah, at the time that we were thinking about becoming dads, it was 2003. 2003 2004 and almost every gay couple we knew that were becoming dads were going through the route of uh were, were going the surrogacy route there was even i can't remember the name of it there was even the saturday club the, the dad's club dad uh daddy i can't remember the name of it there was like this park there was like a once a month club of dads gay dads that would meet and all of them grew out of the same surrogacy uh company okay um and they were like a support group for each other but surrogacy was the way that they went about it and it's a very specific way to go and it's yeah. um and there's a very very different <laughs> there's a very big difference between um well there's a very obviously when your baby comes home and you're and you're up in the middle of the night and you're feeding your child and you're trading back and forth and you're having no sleep and you're rocking them and you're all of the equipment is the same. And, you know, you don't really understand the differences between, uh, you know, a biological child and an adoptive child until, until a little bit more time passes. Um, and it's a really rewarding experience. Regardless, your kid is your kid. You love them unconditionally. You couldn't love one more than the other. But there are certain things that as time went on, um, we, we discovered and we learned the differences in our experience with our kids, just in terms of even recognizing ourselves in them um, is a difference that a biological parent might feel like, wow, they look exactly like me, but they act nothing like me. That right, is very right. common. Or you look at your kid and it's like, this kid looks nothing like me, but they're on 100% the same way I was when I was a kid. Um, our kids were very much their own individuals, which they will be for the rest of their lives. And it's the way everyone should parent anyway. But um, we definitely had this conversation where I think I was a little bit more open to going the surrogacy route because I always... I guess like any, you know, I, I had to admit like anybody who wanted to become a parent, I was so curious about in what ways the lineage of my family and, you know, would potentially, you know, morph into a new blob that would become, you know, a new yeah. human being on the planet that was tied to me biologically. Um, but Don definitely had a very, very strong feeling. He, 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 for the most part, had never really thought about being a parent. 
Um, he came out of the closet in a very in the seventies, and his experience about being gay was very different than mine. And he he never imagined marriage and kids as even part of that narrative of being a gay man, but he loved babies and he, and he wanted to be a dad eventually. We were 10 years into our relationship, but he really felt so strongly that there are so many babies being born on this planet at all the time that don't have loving homes and that need loving homes. And there are women who get pregnant all the time who can't, you know, who don't have the resources either emotionally or financially or psychologically to either have a first kid or have their fifth kid or whatever. So he really felt strongly that if he was going to be a dad, the only way he could do it was that, that way. And because I was motivated really just by wanting to be a parent, it wasn't, I didn't feel as strongly about which way we went. Um, so I was like, well, if that's the only way you're going to be a dad, then I'm happy to go that route. Yeah. And so we hired an adoption lawyer and we got some advice and we talked to others and we read books and we met a birth mom and I chronicle the whole story and even the false start we had with a different birth mom in yeah. the, in the book. Um, you know, it's an emotional process that's very, very specific, unlike surrogacy, where you're sort of in, you're engaged in an arrangement with someone from the very beginning who is just carrying a baby for you but is, has no biological ties to that child um in an adoption we were always always aware and we were told to be aware but we we were we really honored this process which is that whether whether the birth parent whether the birth mother or or um has feels very very confident in their decision um, to make an adoption plan. It's a, it's an emotional one. And no matter what, you may wind up in a situation where the happiest day of your life quite possibly could be the most unhappy day for another person. And that that happening on the exact same day is something that you have to be aware of. It, it changes the way the birthday occurs for you. Yeah. It, a lot of the celebration of our child happened once we brought the baby home. But in the hospital, we, you know, we had this 19-year-old who we had been taken care of and who we cared deeply about. We were very sensitive, and you have to be, to the feelings of that young woman who is making a huge sacrifice and is going through all kinds of emotions of their own, not to mention the hormonal explosion that occurs at birth. So the adoption path is really specific. It's really rewarding. Um, and, and yet those, the navigating of the relationship with the birth mom is very specific, um, to, to guys who want to go down the adoption path and, and women as well. Yeah. Um, so it was a discussion that we had, but quite quickly, I was aware of the fact that I don't think that we're going to be able, we're going to be parents um, through surrogacy because it was, it was sort of off the table for Don. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't, I didn't feel so strongly about it that it was a deal breaker. So we didn't. Yeah. So now what's really common and what you were just talking about is, is uh, most adoptions today are what are called open adoptions, which is where there is continued uh, communication with the birth mom or the birth family and the adoptive family once the babies are placed, um, whether that be through letters, photos, visits, whatever. And, and again, every adoption situation is different. Um, but in the past, this is something that wasn't done often. Adoptions were most times closed and the, the files were sealed and, you know, people would, would grow up up having this secret in their household and they would find out that they were adopted at 18 and all of that. So can you explain uh, to my listeners, you know, what having an open adoption meant to you and, and what it's been like, you know, having that connection with the birth mother, Monica, um, and how you've maintained that relationship over time? Um, sure. Um, well, you know, we became very intimate with uh, our birth mom in the visits that she had to, you know, she, a lot of this depends. It's so different for every adoption. Mm -hmm. We it, we were, we, we made this adoption plan, I think when, when she was in the third or fourth month of pregnancy. So month five, month six, month seventh, month eighth, there were visits to LA. There were moments where we were taking her out and, you know, we were stayed in touch. Um, 
you're involved in helping support them during their pregnancy. They're called pregnancy-related expenses. You can't ever really pay. Uh, the way that you create an, an arrangement with a surrogate where there's a fee for what they're doing for your family, you can't do that in adoption. Adoption, you can reimburse someone for their pregnancy-related expenses, but you can't pay someone to, to, to give you a child. That's called, you know, baby buying. And you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. But we were very involved in supporting her during her pregnancy. So there was an affection we had and a sort of a paternal vibe we had towards this teenage birth mom anyway. Um, but then with the help of Vista Del Mar Family Services, which is a, a Los Angeles-based um, family services, full service, it's a school, it's a foster organization, it's also an adoption um, center. And we had a lot of guidance in creating a contact agreement with our birth mom prior to the birth that we could all agree on, which was how many visits to Los Angeles to see the child, up to what age, how often you'd expect contact. We, we sort of arranged all of that up front and on paper, and we all signed it. Um, you know, is, is it a legal document? Not really. I mean, you can't be sued for not following it, but it was sort of a, a gentleman's agreement, so to speak, where we would all agree that this would be the, the path forward. And we agreed that for the first three years of our child's life, a once a year visit around their birthday would be appropriate. But then once the child was going to be four or five, they would be more aware, They'd be they, it would be a lot more questions and we made a commitment that once our child themselves were asking to, to see their birth mom asking about their birth mom um then that would be our cue to set up another uh, contact um we always told eliza and jonah from the birth we would tell the story of how they came about about how they were part of an adoption plan with their birth mom and how we all loved them before they were even born and it was all it grew out of this decision regardless of what narrative you tell your kids there they have feelings about it on their own and when eliza turned 10 she asked about her birth mom and we arranged a visit to wisconsin to see her birth mom and her birth mom's mother who's grandmother and as it turns out my kids have two full siblings my, both of my kids are full siblings mm -hmm. and they have twins who are also their full siblings. Wow. So that's a very unique circumstance. So when we travel to Wisconsin to visit them all, which is about every other year now, we are at a very big table with a lot of people and the, their two full siblings are there and they, they have a real connection to those siblings. Um, and the birth mom is someone that now that my kids are teenagers, they, they talk to on Snapchat and they FaceTime with and they text. Um, and when we go to Wisconsin, we have meals and we go to parks and we go bowling and we do stuff together every other year. Um, but it's good that it, there's no secrecy about it. It's out in the open. They can have as much or as little contact as they want now that they're teenagers. But up until they were 10, we sort of let them drive the curiosity around seeing their birth mom. And um, so it didn't really start. Those visits to Wisconsin didn't really start until they were, until Eliza was 10, Jonah was eight. And then we did another one at 12, another visit at 14. And we just went back this past summer as well. So we have a fairly, you know, we don't talk that often. We connect on the phone, but mostly through social media. Yeah. That's awesome. That's so beautiful. You know, we are very fortunate, my husband and I, to have matched with um, a birth mom that's here local in town. So we oh, get to wow. go. To, yeah, it's it's so great. And we know how unique and special it is. We've gotten to go to every doctor's visit. We spent Mother's Day with her. We've met her entire family. That's um, amazing. Yeah, a little different than your situation. She is not a teen mom. She is actually in her 40s. And this is like her fifth pregnancy. And it's twins. And she's just like, oh, hell no. Nah. So we, um, you know, similarly, our kids are going to have siblings who they will know. And we're, we're just super excited for that same kind of thing. Like, we can't wait to be at a big table with all of, you know, our extended family and our, our twins, half siblings, and, and knowing that they'll 
know those people and those faces and they'll know their birth story, you know, their whole lives gives me a lot of peace of mind knowing that, you know, when they turn 18, they're not going to run off to go find their parents somewhere because they'll, they'll just always know where they come from. So I think that's beautiful. How close do you all live to the birth family? We're about 45 minutes away. So it's close enough where like we can see each other whenever we want, but we're not like bumping into each other at the grocery store, you know? Right. So I and think it's like the good, a good amount of distance. And you feel good. And I'm only asking, I'm not stirring yeah. up trouble, but you stir it up you, that you guys will drive. You guys will drive the, you know, these will be yes. decisions made by you. Yeah, I, we do. You know, obviously, like we've said, every adoption story is so different. And, you know, there's this, this, you talk about in your book, you know, we kind of have to sell ourselves or market ourselves in a way. But then there's also the the part of like us trying to discern things about the birth mom because they don't have to sell themselves in the same way. They're not giving us a, a pamphlet, you know. Um, and so we've had a few matches like your like you, you know, where some fall through, some nothing happens. Um, and with every birth mom we've matched with, you know, we've there's been a little little red flag that's gone up here or there um we've now been matched with this birth mom for over three months and she is incredible there have been no red flag i mean obviously in the beginning we were like cautiously optimistic but she's so great every doctor's appointment whenever the nurses or doctors will ask her something about you know um once the babies are born she kind of just redirects them to us and they'll ask you know questions about uh the baby's names and she'll just you know be like oh well the dads chose to name them like she's already calling the babies what we've chosen to name them so all of these things where she's really solidified to us that that she is firm in her decision and she's also expressed how much faith and trust she's putting in us by choosing us to raise her kids so I feel like we need to put that same faith and trust back into her so that that's it's a, so great. a cohesive relationship. It's that's amazing. It's just amazing. That's really good. That's all really good sign. And it, the state that you're in, wait, tell me you guys We're in Arizona. In, you're in Arizona. In Arizona, can you put both of your names on the baby's birth certificate? Yes, yeah. So we'll that's both great. be on the birth certificate. Because you know, yeah. in some states still, one of the gay dads has to adopt the child and then a year later their spouse can adopt. Yeah. No, which, I don't think that's the case. Which is here. which is why we flew our birth mom to California to do the whole thing here because to do it in Wisconsin could have led to some tricky uh, yeah legal territory. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, there's so many ins and outs, and every state is so different in their adoption laws, and that's why it is so important for adoptive parents to be communicative and to talk to each other and for these stories to be told, you know, when, when everyone was keeping it all hush hush and no one talked about it, we were all just going through this process blind. Um, but we've been able to lean on so many resources, including you. I mean, you were so kind. You reached out to me like a year ago on social media to, yeah. you know, encourage me on, on our adoption journey and, and yeah. being able to connect with people in that regard has just been hugely impactful for me. So I do hope that in, in talking to you and in sharing my story that we can, hopefully help other people who might be going through this process also you know, even if you're in a state that you know that is really amenable or makes it easy for uh for an lgbtq plus individual or couple to to create a family there are so many states where it's not and there's so much anti-lgbtq plus legislation cooking every single day it's unbelievable how how backwards we are moving and so it's so important that people tell their stories and support organizations like Family Equality that are looking to fight the legislation across the country that is blocking people's ability to foster, adopt, and have kids as an LGBTQ plus family. You know, the truth is that there are so many kids in foster care that if every parent who wanted to be a parent were allowed to be a parent, there would be no kids in foster. And the truth is laws are blocking people who are dying to be parents from being parents and those kids just sit there floundering in, in foster so we this is really just about allowing more kids to get love and i can't imagine why you know we're living in a country where it's still possible to block someone from taking care of and nurturing a, a child and making them have a home it's so anyway that's just my little plug for family equality no i mean it's so true and and again you know to my point that's why Having these types of conversations are so important. Um, you know, your your book, 
does this baby make me look straight? It, it like we said, it covers the full gamut of parenthood um, from you know actual situations with your kids to situations with other parents. Once you start sending your kids to school, I mean, you had a a, a guy ask you and Don not to kiss in front of their kids, like not to do PDA. Like, there's so many things that that same sex couples have to navigate that are unique to us and are so different than what other parents face. But on this, the other side of that is there are so many experiences that are universal to all parents. And so I think what's incredible about this book is that you show the normalcies and the oddities and everything in between about being a gay parent. Um, you know, you show that gay people are the same as straight people in so many ways, but we also have to maneuver and navigate through life and also through parenthood in so many different ways. Um, so being able to highlight all of those things, it, it helps not only us feel seen, but hopefully it helps straight people see us a little more. So yes. thank you so much for your book. Uh, anyone who's who's listening, you've got to check out Does This Baby Make Me Look Straight? Uh, the audiobook apparently is a smash, so check that out. Thank you. Dan, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. This was such a treat. It's It's been an honor. And thank you. Um, you're like it's dad goals. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. I mean, I'm raising teenagers right now, so I think they would beg to differ, but thank you for having me. This has been so much fun and um, keep in touch. I want to hear what's happening. Absolutely. What absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank Dan. you. Take care. Bye. Bye.